I'm Carrie Miller, and this is my Friday book show, Big Books and Bold Ideas, and it's good to have you listening in. In a northern Minnesota town, a hospital is closing with a week's notice. That means the OBGYN chief, Dr. Jungman Kwok, is going to have some time on his hands. And that's dangerous for a man who carries his share of unreckoned with secrets. Marie Myung-Ok Lee's new novel combines scathing commentary on health care in America, a portrait of a chilly marriage, and the trauma of war. It's a story that Ms. Lee has long wanted to tell, but that took years to put down on the page, and we'll talk about why. We'll also talk about what it means for her parents to leave all that was familiar for a small town on Minnesota's Iron Range, and Ms. Lee's own return to her parents' homeland of North Korea. Marie Myung-Ok Lee's new novel is titled Evening Hero, and she joins us from New York City. And at long last, Marie, welcome to the show. It's good to talk to you. Thank you. you. I want to pretend I'm in Minnesota. Thank you. (laughs) But we know you're not, and that's okay. (laughs) Um, You know, there's so many paths to explore in this novel, but I have to say, because you nailed the dysfunction and the frequent absurdity of healthcare in America, I have to start there. And I got the sense that these observations that you weave into the into the story have been building up in you for a long time. Is that true? Oh, absolutely. It's kind of um, first. The research that I did was very intensive. I actually was embedded with a medical school class, so I spent a ton of time in the hospital, but not just my local university hospital. I was also at Woodhull Hospital, um, which is a is a public hospital. And then besides doing all of these other medical-related things, my son is medically fragile. And so I think I also, just by osmosis, um, absorbed a lot as well. I'm curious about what you, what kinds of expectations you went in with to your time in the hospital with the, with the medical school student class, and then what you discovered and how that kind of contrasted with what you thought it would look like. Well, I should back up a little bit that my father's a physician. My late father was a physician. Um, he was not an OBGYN, but we were just raised as doctors. We're kings. You know, I grew up in Hibbing. All the doctors, they were all men. And, you know, they were just kind of the leaders of the town. And so that's kind of how I was raised. And um, I also fell short of my parents' dreams by not becoming a doctor myself. So <laughs> possibly oh, what this a is disappointment sort of, you are. <laughs> <laughs> possibly this is a like an 18-year project for me to show my father that, I, yes, I could go to medical school. Um, and if, The thing that I knew was really important for me is first, I can't write without knowing how, like when Jungman's going to do a surgery, like, is he going to hold the scalpel like a pencil or like a knife? Like I can't even write it without knowing that. So I knew I had to go in there, but I also knew the writer is generally not a welcome presence or lay people in general in the operating room or the hospital. Mm. Um, My father's an anesthesiologist and he actually used to joke that that's why they give people anesthesia. So they know they won't see how messy surgery actually is. (laughs) I was able, as a writing instructor at Brown at the time, so I was able to get in a few surgeries um, at the local medical school, but each time they sent in the lawyer, the risk management person with me, and the whole time it was very tense and, you know, obviously don't say anything and, you know, dumb writer, don't touch the incision, et cetera, et cetera. So I'd I'd actually spent two years. This is one of the reasons you'll see all the years are adding up. Uh, I spent two years trying to get into the hospital. I was teaching in ethnic studies as well. Um, We had like a a public health program 
for which I finally wheedled someone to get me in touch with someone else who got me in touch with a new head of OBGYN education who happened to be, instead of a doctor, because I'd been rebuffed everywhere, you know, while I was trying to get into Brown, I, I'd called up Harvard, I'd called up all these other hospitals, and they all told me to get lost. But finally, um, when I connected with this, this man, he was doctor, but it turned out he was not an MD as usual, but he was a PhD. Not only that, mm. he loved fiction, which is such a huge mm. difference. Mm -hmm. So he was thinking of it a lot more in terms of, wow, I know what you need. And so he got me a white coat. Not only that, he got me a really nice professor's coat that the length of the coat makes a difference. He got me the <laughs> longest one, which is the most distinguished. Um, and then he basically sent an email to the department saying, hey, this is Marie Lee. She's a professor at Brown and just help her out. So when I was there, there was, um, I was not universally embraced. Uh, a lot of people felt like I was an interloper, especially sometimes there could only be a certain number of people in the operating room. So some doctors would, would actually kick the med student out so I could watch. There were, there, you know, we had certain tensions, but that was not, you know, once I was in, I was so excited because among other things, once people got so used to me, whether they liked me or not, they started talking the way uh -huh. they talk. And that was the most important thing for me. Crossing this membrane was one of the biggest things, you know, within the 18 years I've been writing this, done, you know, talks to doctors and I've gotten yelled at, but nobody has yelled at me about my accuracy. Almost everyone has yelled at some form of, they should have never let you in there, to which I well, kind of I, say straight. Okay. I don't understand this. I mean, you know, the whole thing is take more charge of your healthcare, understand right. what's going on in the healthcare. I mean, why were you viewed as an interloper? Is it that you would write what you saw and that that was not going to be pretty. And it isn't in this novel. Absolutely. One of the things that, you know, because I love language is thinking about the barriers that they put up. For instance, NPO, what is that? It's an acronym. Oh, wait, it's an abbreviation for what? For non per os. Oh, wow, that's Latin. That's really scary. It's on this person's chart. It just means nothing by mouth. So they could just say, don't eat. But you <laughs> see what could. I'm saying? By having this barrier, yeah. there is this idea that the medical part is, is separate from you. And also people in the profession have this very interesting process that they go through if they actually become sick because they get so used mm -hmm. to being like patients are over here and they're sick and there's something wrong with them. Um, and interestingly, I've met a lot of doctors who when they do get what we would think is terminally ill, like with cancer, they tend to like not do interventions, even though uh, that's kind of like in our consumer, like marketplace, that's what patients want. Like, I want to fight the cancer, I've got to do something. The doctors are more like, I've seen it. I don't want to do anything. And it's kind of ironic. So they'll go to hospice or just go to Mexico and just live out their life in a little cabin. <laughs> it's, so it's, it's interesting, you know, what, what they do and preach, so to speak. And I'm using this mm, religious yeah. um, word quite deliberately versus when it's themselves and they are treating themselves that less is better. Do no harm. Yeah. So, so in the, in the novel, whereas mentioned, uh, Youngman is a, is an OBGYN doc at this small hospital in Northern Minnesota, the, the hospital overlords decide to close the hospital, as, a, as I noted in the intro, with like a week's notice that, to the doctors. And leading up to that, they've been through th these mind-boggling cuts to the operation that included eliminating key staff, paring back on things like saline drips, <laughs> scrimping on medications. I mean, I, I guess I, I wondered if 
some of this was satire to make the point or whether you truly observed some of this in a in a place by the way this hospital is supposed to be a nonprofit right and most people don't realize nonprofits don't mean that it's like government run <laughs> they or they want to help you um well, there's two things. One, I, I will back up. And in order to get my writing career off the ground um, and live in New York at the same time, I knew I had to forgo getting an MFA. And I majored in economics at Brown. And so I worked as, as an investment banker for six years. Mm-hmm. So I have a pretty deep financial background, um, particularly in the early 90s. There's a lot of things going on with mergers and acquisitions uh, and so forth. And hedge funds were just beginning. So I'm very comfortable with that world. Um, for me, in general, um, our hospital did close, um, and then it it slowly merged till now there's the Iron Range Medical Center, where my father worked at Hibbing General Hospital. I don't know if that's actually what happened in terms of, you know, the financials and so forth, but I was right. thinking in terms of when my father worked, um, he, we never ever saw money. You never saw money being exchanged or money was never a part of the hospital. And I actually interviewed a son of um, one of um, my father's peers. And he we were because we were talking about, you know, sometimes when people couldn't pay, my father would just be like, fine. And then occasionally someone would like, wow. dump a giant thing of, you know, crappies on his desk, you know, frozen crappies. For like, real? OK, doc. I am serious. You wouldn't, we had to get an extra freezer because of all the game deer. I just remember eating buckshot a lot when I was growing up deer crocheted slippers with sequins, endless golf um, themed trophies from grateful patients. But my, my friend who works at a quote unquote normal hospital today, he said that it would somehow be against the law or against some kind of billing statutes to treat someone for free. This is something else that I wanted to to note, but let me do this. Um, if you're listening to my Friday book show, I'm Carrie Miller, and I'm having a conversation with Marie Myung Oak Lee and her new novel, Evening Hero. Um, as if you've just gotten in on the conversation, we're talking about all of the research and the insight that Marie got uh, in looking into the investigating the healthcare, our modern healthcare system, and how that contrasts with um, the experience of her dad, who was an anesthesiologist in northern Minnesota and worked for a hospital for a long time, and what has happened to healthcare since then. So I want to talk about hospital consolidation, because I think you're getting to this, and, and you write into that in the novel. I, I went back and uh, read this, um, I think it was a 2012 story from NPR, Uh, that warned of the effects of hospital consolidation. And what you just talked about, hospitals closing, you have to drive for miles to get to a hospital while you're in labor. And um, there was a story about what was happening in New Prague. And uh, they talked, the reporter talked to a hospital administrator whose hospital has been bought out by Mayo. And she says, we hear that healthcare is becoming more like a number New Prague is not unique. We all experience a fair amount of turnover in healthcare. It's not the friendly face you saw last time or your neighbor who's caring for you now. That like epitomizes what you're talking about here and what the effect is on patients. Right. Patients become collateral damage while number counters say, 
U.S. healthcare is a trillion-dollar industry. It is one of the largest industries. We have to monetize that. That's what happens. And that one of the reasons OBGYN is the first one to go is because if you look at it economically, it is the quote-unquote loss leader. They literally call it the loss leader of the hospital. So in Hibbing, it's a social contract because you have to have somewhere to have your baby, okay? But to the number counter, it is the loss leader because actually a healthy birth does not bring in any revenue, which is also sometimes why they try to push you to do C-sections because that's a 10-day stay in the hospital. The reason that they allow it as a loss leader is because it is an introduction to the brand. So if you have your baby there, you may come back to the hospital, but that is the only the sort of only pro (laughs) economic Mm. reason to have that. So that is why that is often the first place to go. You know, I, I wondered if you remember hearing your dad talk about what he, I mean, his awareness of his contribution to the community, you know, like who he was and how necessary he was in, in the community that he served. Do you remember that? Oh, definitely. Um, it's it's probably too long a story to recount, but among other things, um, he had some immigration problems. And um, so many people from the town came out to sign this petition. This is when, kind of when he, he and my mother were, actually this happened right when I was born. So around mm. um, in the mid 60s. But the whole town came out to sign this petition about how important he was because the anesthesiologist is actually the key person. If you're giving birth, if you have an accident, if you have surgery. My father never took a day off. He could never drink because he was always on call, a little bit like Jungmann. Um, And so he devoted himself to the community. But what was very interesting is he had quite a stellar academic career in Korea and probably could have, he actually, actually Minnesotans would probably know, my father actually was um, one of the anesthesiologists at Seawalt and Lily High's first um, Open heart surgery. That that's incredible. Yes. So the and the anesthesiologist is the more important person in some ways, keeping the person alive while their heart is, <laughs> while everything else is being stopped. <laughs> so yes, my father did. Um, he you know just even from the sheer hours, the fact he was never home, and that you know, and then just the piles of slippers that we had in the house were a constant reminder. And you know, just going out, it was always. I just remember going to the county fair. If I was going to the county fair with my dad and holding his hands, like we never get anywhere. I'd never get my mini donuts because everyone would be like, <laughs> Dr. Lee, Dr. Lee, or sometimes people want to show them their gallstone scars. And so that's, that's one of the reasons I wanted to be a doctor. But you know, he, my father did more at the end of his life. He did see some of this coming. I was too young to really understand Mm. it. Um, But he did read, uh, which which I understand now he did read like magazines, like medical economics. So Mm. he was not unaware of what was happening. And at the time too, given that the economy of Hibbing was tanking, I think in tandem, so many things just started unraveling. And so at the hospital, they had to have seen this unraveling as well. You, you've alluded to this a couple of times. Your parents were both born in Korea. Now, please correct me if this isn't right. Your your father was born in Pyongyang. Yes. What is now the capital city of North Korea. Yes. And where was your mother born? My mother was born in Hamnan province, which is also in North Korea. It, it's a more rural place. So... Where were they? How old were they when the peninsula, the Korean peninsula, was divided? What was it, 1945, I think? Yes. So 
what's interesting, people think of immigration as a binary, but most people don't just immigrate. There's things that happen along the way. My parents are migrants. When my mother was 14, so 1945, after Japan lost the war, Korea had been forcibly colonized by Japan. So when Japan mm -hmm. lost, Russia and the US were, well, what do we do with this colony? So while Korea was saying, hello, hello, like we have a government already in place, let's be free again. The US, it was the US that decided to split it. The 38th parallel was kind of a guess. Two young officers kind of like, here, you figure this out. They did have a map. The guy just kind of decided 38th parallel versus the 39th parallel or the 37th parallel. It was roughly in half. It kept Seoul in the South. However, mm -hmm. it kept Seoul within shelling distance of North Korea. Mm -hmm. You can't have everything. Mm -hmm. So the top part was basically given to Russia. And in North Korea, they had started governing themselves, but then the Russians came in and apparently it was extremely brutal. My parents, particularly my mom, will not speak of it. She has never spoken of it. She will not speak of it. I suspect there were a lot of brutalization of women. Um, she was 14 at the time that happened. But then you can, you also have to think of it in terms of people didn't know what was going to happen. My mother's family was very wealthy. They were big landowners. Mm. Do you stay with what you know? I'm trying to think. I'm sitting here in my New York apartment now. If this happened and I had to go to Florida, would I stay or would I go, uh, oh, maybe I should take my chances in Florida? So when the Russians were coming in, no one really knew what was happening or if it would be bad or would the South be better. But my mother had an aunt who was a single mother, which in Korea is a huge stigma. So she had nothing to lose. She's a single mom, two children. So my mother's mother made her go on an errand to take one of the children. She had to carry her on his on her on, on her back. Um, they had to make an arduous cross mountain journey and then pay a sort of fixer. And I don't wow. even know what happened along the way. Um, and the border was heavily militarized and dashed across the border. She she also has was they had to leave everything behind. So she has no like pictures of her family or anything. And the the thing that I think haunts her the most, for which she will not. She will not talk about this again, but I have inferred that this has happened. Well, she never said goodbye to her mother. Oh, her mother just gosh. packed her wow. lunch. And then what happened is the border was completely sealed the next day. Hmm. So she never realized she was never going to see her family again. So for my father, who was older, he hmm. had miraculously, um, even through the Japanese occupation, he had studied so hard. He had managed to get into Seoul National University. So in order for him to study there, he was sent south when the border was still somewhat permeable. So he was mm -hmm. already safely ensconced in Seoul at the time. And then his sister was sent to like cook for him and stuff. So mm -hmm. he was already there. So his migration was different. But then the separation was the same. He also didn't know he was never going to see his family again. Wow. Oh my gosh, I can't be, I, I can't even imagine how you live with the knowledge of that, except the consequence. The alternative is just so unthinkable that I guess you you move on. I, mean, I really think that's why my parents were so, you have to be American, have to be American. And then when kids would be calling me chink, it's cool. And I, they would never even talk about Korea. And I can kind of see why now, like as an adult, 
you know, knowing what I know, I see it now, mm. but it was very frustrating for me as a child for them not to say, you tell those kids you're Asian American or something. They never said that. They always said, you tell them you're American. And so I didn't know anything about being Korean except that we took our shoes off of the house. Huh. So you've been to North Korea, right? Yes. How did you get in? <laughs> so this is, again, I'm generally a kind of uh, polite, shy person. But once I know I need something for the book, just like getting into the operating room, I become fixated. <laughs> so at one point, so when I started writing about this place that was going to switch, um, and it was based on a real place, I got completely obsessed with, I have to go to North Korea. I have to know what it smells like. I have to put my feet on the land. And that was just one of the really stupid things where I was feeling like, ah, this, so I'll never get this book written. Um, and then a very strange thing happened. Some um, brown students in the Asian studies, they had made friends with a fixer in China who could bring mm. us to North Korea as an academic group. The other problem being because North Korea, the, the whole idea of diasporic Koreans is an anathema to North Korea because if you love, you know, North Korea is so great. <laughs> Everyone should want to live in North Korea. So they leave? actually, yeah. exactly. They don't let in diaspora Koreans. In fact, when we went to like this DMZ tour, like, like my Korean relatives had to stay behind and stuff. Um, so it's, it's very fraught. You can't go to North Korea from South Korea. It's all Korean. It's basically diaspora Koreans stay out. So they would never, they would never let someone like me in. Um, but what ended up happening is they needed uh, a faculty leader. But then I just got completely obsessed. And then the Brown students were so clever. They found a way to get me around um, the problem of having my Korean name. The North Korean government did want to know, wait, who's going? Wait, what, who is this person? And so what they mm -hmm. did is they got our visas. Instead of going to Beijing, they went to a smaller consulate um, in Shenyang to get a group visa. And mm -hmm. so... While they were still asking about this, and I'm being so dutiful, I'm like, here, here's my like family name in Chinese and everything. They said, no, 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 no. We're going to tell them we can't get in touch with you. And that if they want us to go, they'll just have to wow, give us, yes. And crazily so enough. You, you kind of got buried in the middle of this group. That is correct. Yeah. And I have to admit, then, because my father had passed away by then, I smuggled my mom on that list. My mom was like almost 80 she can be somewhat irascible. Uh, let me say a little bit of a loose cannon. But I also felt this is, you know, when is this ever going to happen again? Well, for instance, they told us we weren't supposed to speak Korean. So the minute we got there, she started speaking Korean and so forth. Um, yes. So the fact well, that I'm not on the gulag is actually the second miracle of this whole trip. <laughs> so what was this like for you to watch this experience for your mother? What it was like to have her come back was very interesting because also all the students, you know, were just looking, they're just waiting for her to have some huge emotional reaction. She's returning to her homeland. But because it had been bombed to smithereens and rebuilt as a Stalinist masterpiece, mm -hmm. she saw nothing, almost nothing familiar. For instance, they wow. fed us Western food. I think that's how you get fancy. And that we were taken to the most westernized places. And then the only time she saw something she recognized was when she saw this gourd on a fence. And then oddly, it was a monument to Kim Il-sung. It was his birthplace. But it was, this is very North Korean. Mm -hmm. It was a log cabin. <laughs> <laughs> um, as if every great person had to grow up like Lincoln. <laughs> now, log cabins are not 
traditional in Korea and they don't have those kind of trees. So a lot of it, what happened is she went up and touched that gourd and found out it was plastic. Wow. So the one thing that she saw that was familiar was plastic. And that was the only thing. No, so no, even it just nothing like this. There was no evocative smell or people all kind of dressed in these kind of IBM in the 1960s uniforms. There was Mm -hmm. nothing familiar for her. So she did not have an emotional like she she had she was not supposed to talk about this, but she had talked about, oh, I think um, like my brother once had a clinic here or this or that and and. But you know what I mean? Like, there's not, there wasn't even any geographical like marker where, where she could even like, yeah, yeah. There, that she would even know. Like, none of the buildings would be there. This is so. I read your, I read part of your author's note where you, you talk about the reason that the novel took so long to finish is that you were doing all this historical research and then you were doing the medical research and you were struggling with what accuracy is, but. But now that I hear this, now I, I have some insight on what you meant when you wrote, but what is accuracy and how much does it become altered by personal experience as well as bent by the vagaries of time? That, that explains it. What, what kind of an answer have you come to on this? One answer that I have come to, because I once read a book that put Buddha's birthday near Christmas, as if Buddha and Jesus had to have been born at the same time, where if you're Asian, everyone knows Buddha's birthday is in April. (laughs) Do you see what I'm saying? Where that it made me feel that this is fiction, but I'm going to, particularly with the claims that I am making about um, the U.S. occupation, I'm going to make sure everything is verifiable within plausibility. For mm-hmm. instance, um, I was actually talking to Nicholson Baker, who had, he just wrote this book about FOIA, and a lot mm-hmm. of it was, he was trying to FOIA all this stuff about them using biological weapons in Korean War, and I showed him some pages, and he said, how do you know all this? And I said, I don't. I said, I talked to as many survivors as I could, and many people talked about powder falling from the sky, and stuff, you know, all these kind of things that he had already discovered. So nothing that's in the book isn't anything that is, isn't possible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I've done enormous amounts of reading and I've talked to lots of survivors. So it's not as if, and one of the things I, I'm glad you brought this thing up about the vagaries of memory. Cause at first I thought, Oh, I'm finding all this stuff out about biological weapons. Look at me. But then I saw, for instance, in Bong Joon-ho's movie. So Bong Joon-ho, um, he's most famous for Parasite. But he had mm-hmm. another movie that is highly critical of the U.S. Occupa- the continual U.S. occupation of Korea. It's called The Host. And it's based on a true story when the U.S., against Korean objections, wanted to dump formaldehyde into our beloved Han River. But they did anyways. So but what happens in the movie, it creates this really disgusting monster that kind of rampages everywhere. It's obviously very metaphorical. But there is a scene where it's kind of militarized and there's this voice just saying, oh, we're all fine. We're all fine. But then there's this thing that comes, some weird machine, and it's just spewing this white powder and people are falling to the ground and writhing and seizuring. And I thought, this looks just like my imagination. Yeah, <laughs> what? Yeah. So I'm saying, okay, 
maybe I feel like this is a great mem great thing I found, but in the Korean cultural memory, it's obviously pretty front and center. Do you, you know what I'm saying? Like yeah, as an American, yeah. I'm so yes. America centered, but it never occurred to me that no, for the people who have suffered this, so an art like an artist like Bong Joon Ho, this is mm -hmm. just absorbed and is is part of the memory, just like our memory of like the Boston Tea Party or something. I mean. Yeah, in some ways, it also, it kind of reminds me of what happened after 9-11. And you would, you would hear personal accounts of people who said they witnessed, you know, the, the buildings falling, who couldn't have because they were, you know, hundreds of miles away. But it, it's the way that that trauma enters the, the personal imagination. Oh, absolutely. It's no less important, right? It is no less important. Right. It's like a collective. It's a collective right. trauma that everybody is kind of tapping into. Right. Right. I'm Carrie Miller, and you're listening to Big Books and Bold Ideas, and I'm in conversation with Marie Myung-Oak Lee about her new novel, Evening Hero, and about the story of her parents and her life in northern Minnesota and how that has been woven into the story in this novel. You skipped over something that, that I don't want to miss. Your mother and father live in northern Minnesota, and your father has this important and necessary position at the hospital there. But is it right that they were threatened with deportation and they had to live with the threat that they were going to be sent back to Korea what? And on the day you were born, what is it? They find out that they can stay or they get the notice of deportation or how does that work? So I recently found this paper among my parents' papers and it is a notice of deportation. It says something like the INS has caught up to you. Deportation proceedings are starting. It was dated on April 23rd. So it, it came to them on my birthday. So basically it's not my parents do not seem like the face of undocumented immigration, but the laws at the time forbid immigration from East Asia. Uh, my father being so highly educated, he was a, a translator, among other things, for the 8th Army, and he met people, including people at the University of Minnesota, who helped him come over. They got him a visa. But the actual law, which was rescinded later with the Heart Seller Act by Lyndon Johnson, who also um, apologized about how racist it was. Um, mm -hmm. But at the time, when their visa ran out, they were undocumented immigrants. But among other things, Hipping Hospital knew this could happen. And they had not been able to get an anesthesiologist for years because no one wants to do that job, as we were talking about earlier. It's a very tough job. And also, um, one of the reasons I was always so proud of my father for staying he could have made so much more money later. The whole idea of the people coming out and signing the petition was just the beginning of many failures. Um, nobody wanted to do anything about it, even with the petition saying he was so important. And it wasn't necessarily that he individually was so important. I think it, a lot of it was he was so important to the community because without yeah. an anesthesiologist, there's no hospital. Right. Um, so our congressperson brought it to Congress mm -hmm and the State Department who said, no, 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 no. If we give him any kind of stay, he's going to leave. He's so educated. He could have such a great career. So he came back, and it was Jim Oberstar, who I believe 
had some connections to the State Department. He said, no, he actually took the petition back and said, I know this man. He's a man of honor. He will not leave. And on Oberstar's recommendation, hmm. and you have to you have to remember, this is over months and months of my parents getting ready to be deported. Oh, my gosh. Um, with Living me being with that Melbourne. every day. Yes, because oh, gosh, there, it did not seem like this was likely that this was going to happen. They ended up having to pass a House resolution, a single law, just so my parents could stay in the U.S., but it also was not a law of, of oh, now you're citizen, yay. It was... Um, He's still an alien ineligible for citizenship. It had all these scary things on his passport about how he had to always register as an alien wherever he went. And then also he would he was not he was not eligible for any kind of benefits, you know, social security or anything like that. So it was a weirdly almost wow. just like a green card labor kind of thing where and in the meantime, because he was so educated, all his peers, you know, back in Korea are all becoming deans of medical schools and so forth. And here he's in this tiny town. He doesn't know if he's gonna get deported. Right. Yeah, it was, it was a it was a very, very, very tough time, as I understand, since I was only two days old. In the novel, the marriage between Dr. Youngman Kwok and his wife. Is it Young A? How would yes, you how do perfect. I pronounce it? Okay. Very perfect. Um, she is herself uh, a brilliant medical student in Korea, but for a number of reasons she cannot practice. Well, one of which she gets pregnant and he they come to the United States and she ends up not going to going to qualify, I guess, for medical school and to become a doctor. And the the character of the marriage between these two characters in the novel is just, it's so reserved. They don't, huge parts of their personal biographies are unknown to each other. And I really couldn't help but wonder if, you know, that was in some ways the nature of your parents' marriage. Not that this is, I, I do not want to give our listeners the impression that you've just, you've written your life story and right. you said it's a novel. That's not it at all. But there are some touch points here. And I oh, absolutely. the marriage is one of them. Absolutely. I think the entrance to the marriage had to do a lot more with the idea of inherited trauma. Uh, we are actually finding out medically now that you know, for instance, the grandchildren of Holocaust survivors seem to have DNA that's altered and possibly hmm. can actually, it's very strange. They're doing these, these, they're doing these experiments where, I don't know, when people are in the camps and say they got some aversion to apples, that their grandchildren will somehow like hate apples. There's this really interesting medical research hmm. about this. And that made me think about how among my friends and cohorts, particularly among other Korean American writers, uh, my my closest friends have always been Korean American women writers, mm -hmm. and one day we all realized that we all had this this trauma that was hard for us to articulate, and that we all had these similarities in our families, particularly with this kind of frustration boiling sometimes into violence, like physical violence, um, and then we all had mothers who would have had magnificent careers. In fact, I had two friends who had mothers who probably would have been famous soprano opera singers, oh which is gosh. probably the pinnacle of Korean society. Wow. 
that, you know, and then for my mother, she was at Ihua, which is the Radcliffe of Korea, but she was mm -hmm. like a college student when the war happened. So in a weird way for her, everything that happened to her was not, you know, I am a person with agency, I'm going to do this. Mm -hmm. So starting when mm -hmm. she was 14, she had, was dragged to, you know, Seoul all by herself. She ended up having to live with her brother at, um, who was already married and did not, his, his wife did not like her. And there's, there seemed to be a lot of horrible things that happened to her there. Then the war happened. So she's not able to go to college and she's, she doesn't really have close family. Um, I do know she did not tell me. She actually told a friend of mine that she had met for two minutes. I think this is the nature of family stories. Yes. Uh, my very good friend, Kyung, who's, who's just also a very good listener. Um, cause I've always enrolled my mother in all these oral history projects, just hoping it will, will get some stuff out of her. And, you know, I want, I want to know as a daughter, but no, even for that, she's got this iron wall that, she, but for some reason she tells Kyung, Oh yeah, you know, I had this boyfriend that I was going to immigrate with, but he didn't, he didn't win the lottery for the visa or whatever. So then I went with she, her dad. Like, I think she might have even been talking <laughs> about this in Korean. So I wouldn't let her. Oh, yeah. Wow. So, you know, but you know, to hear that and then me immediately calling my siblings going, Oh my God, no wonder, you know, mom and dad have always had this, like he, she had a boyfriend and, you know, and so, so yeah, there is this idea of, um, the trauma, that people of my parents' generation, like they had, they went through the colonization. They weren't allowed to speak Korean. You know, that was completely brutal. They were given Japanese names. And then to have, you know, the split happen. And then, you know, the the, the migration, then the war, you know, and, you know, my dad spent a whole Anne Frank year like hiding from North oh, Koreans. I mean, having gosh. all this and then coming to the US and then having these kids who were like, eh, I don't want like this for dinner. Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> and, you know, me feeling oppressed that my parents were so mad at me when I didn't get into Harvard and not understanding any of this. And then also to some degree, them not understanding that, for instance, in the U.S., it's not okay to hit your kids. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? Like they also came from mm -hmm. a different culture and then they're struggling as much as they can do. And so it wasn't until I had all these friends and we almost became like this de facto you know, like group where, you know, there was, you know, so within this group, we all had mothers who probably at one time or another were depressed, but we didn't have uh -huh. name for the depression. And that also seems like a very appropriate response to some of the things they've been through. Um, they all had children young. Do you know what I'm saying? So you're an immigrant, you know, you know what I mean? You're in a new place. And you know, my parents were in Jim Crow, Alabama before they came to Minnesota. You know, my mom had a tiny baby and my father was always at the hospital. They lived in a basement apartment and they also did not understand what this whites only thing meant. They didn't even know mm. like what, like where, like where they're supposed to drink. Like they're so complete. They go from an homogenous country to this. Yeah. They're completely confused. My mom doesn't know anything. My mom's family was so rich. She never learned how to cook. She has this baby. My dad's never home. And my father, you know, this is very, you know, um, appropriate to Korean culture, I guess. My father was never interested in children. Um, that's always been like, oh, that's that's the wife's job. And then, you know, and he also has had these crazy <laughs> hours. So, but, you know, now that I've had my own child who's had high needs, you know, I just kind of feel like, wow, I'd get really mad <laughs> if my partner didn't <laughs> help me. You know, so that's unimaginable to me that my mom had four children, you know, in a pretty quick succession. Yeah, that is mind-blowing. And did you it know, all basically herself. It, it, here's a question I have, and you've, you've kind of gotten to this. It, it, as, as I, as I mentioned, I mean, in the novel, and it sounds like in, 
in the truth of your parents' marriage. There's a reserve and a formality. How different is your marriage from your parents? And what do you think your parents think about your marriage? Um, yeah, I think they think there's like the whole idea of love. Um, even though I didn't know this at the time, the idea, the Korean idea, if I could generalize of love is, did you eat here? I made this for you. Eat more. Yeah. Eat more, you know, do this. I take care of you when you're sick. It's, it's, um, cause I used to tell my parents that I love them and I know it just set off this, uh, cringe reaction in them <laughs> where I didn't know how to deal with that because you know what I mean? Or I try to cuddle with my dad and he would just really stiffen. And then I, I realized like in Korea, like the family structure is much more formal with the patriarch and so forth. And so, you know, when I first started dating my boyfriend, you know, he, he would pick up on this and then he wouldn't like to hold my hand in front of them. And I was like, let's hold hands. But he was the one who really picked <laughs> up on, uh, this feels weird. <laughs> and so, yes, yeah, so there for my parents, the whole idea of like a, a love match that you, it's just because you love someone, you know, it's not just that, but, but that it's, it's more of an emotional sort of thing versus, you know, you're two people like oxen hooked together and you're working <laughs> together to plot a field is very different. I mean, you know, it sounds a little bit like when you hear about arranged marriages, that the view of that marriage is we're built, like, like you've just alluded to, we're building something together and there isn't a lot of time or effort put into, you know, the the passion that motivates everything, right? That's the catalyst for the whole, for the whole life. And when I, when I, as I'm articulating this, I'm thinking that sounds pretty stupid and it must sound kind of immature to, you know, people of your, your parents' generation and background. Right. Like, why would you want to base it on emotion? It's like, it's like it, a capitalist it, yes. enterprise. Yeah. But, you know, to kind of like bring it back to the book, I had this wonderful scene. So you can also see where Youngman is so not my father at all. But I had this wonderful scene where Youngman is like going to this like men's help thing. And he comes back with this book and he mispronounces it. It's like men are from Mars and women are from Venice. <laughs> and he's like, oh, and this thing I should be doing more. Da, da, da. So, to some, you know, what I mean, to some degree, probably emotionally, I was like, wow, I wonder what life could have been like. My dad was like getting, the, you know, trying self-help books or trying to take out the garbage more or, you know, he did at the end. And in fact, I'm staring at it right now because it's so rare. And I recently just found it. In fact, it's dated 4286. It just says, I love you. It says, I love you. And it's on my father's stationery. Oh, and wow. You know what? I thought the scene that you were going to mention was the scene that's towards the end where young A, Dr. Kwok's wife, um, just quietly acknowledges that he's carried the burden, how much he cares and how, how she's seen that and how much that has meant to her. I've thought about that scene a lot, Marie. Thank you. It's beautiful. And I, I do think that because my father predeceased my mother, I do think that in, she herself came to some similar conclusions, mm. even though they were not. It's kind of funny, too. It wasn't even like, 
they weren't tender to each other, but mm-hmm. it was more, yeah, I think my mom was more business-like. She, maybe she was a little bit more like young A. And then my father kind of was just puzzled. And also he was the first son and he was so used to it. You know, as I mentioned, they sent his sister to basically cater to him when he was the student. So he would never have to worry about anything. He was so used to being catered to. So similarly, I used to just joke all the time because, you know, when my father wanted his coffee cup refilled, he would just hold it up you know, like you're at a diner or something. <laughs> but to him, that was just, well, I'm whatever. I'm the first son. And so I think for my mother, probably, you know, having gone to Ehua and she had been a pharmacy major, um, which is probably what you did if you couldn't be a doctor. Pharmacy was probably the most prestigious major. And she had done um, some things during the war to help. But then after that, you know, what do you do when you're, you know, again, to all our friends, moms, you went mm-hmm. to the the Radcliffe of Korea, you're stuck with these kids. Everyone thinks because your English is accented, you're stupid. And, you know, and that the, the life of the young mother with children is already so lonely. So think of my mom living in Hibbing and, you know, was she going to talk to like we lo- we had lovely neighbors. And that's the interesting thing why we grew up eating casserole because she just did her best to adapt. She joined the, you know, like the wives groups and just did um, all the things she could. And, you know, I actually found this amazing picture the other day, too, where my parents are like on a cruise or something and they're in some conga line and my they're it's so performative do you know what i'm saying they've got the conga line faces on but i'm like i was showing this to carl my husband i was like these are not my parents so much of being in a new place i really feel like it's like fake it till you make it like you know there are these prescribed ways to be like so you cannot be crabby in the conga line right so they just gave themselves up so much. And I think to some degree, giving yourself up so much and like reserving so little for yourself, it's almost like your new country is like some narcissist partner and then leaving yourself so little, like, because I do remember growing up, it was always like, oh no, the white people are right. The white people are right. Like get out of the way or like, da, 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 da. Like we were always like brought up to not, not stand out, not take up space. And it was always, you know, even if they didn't say like the white people, that was kind of the inference. Mm. And to them too, you know, because that's what was so weird and wonderful for me spending that year and a half in Korea as a Fulbright scholar. Like, oh, wow, everyone here is Korean. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? (laughs) Like, this is how I move through life as looking like everybody else. And, you know, for my parents, they had to give up that idea that they could just walk around and know everyone else looked like them and understood them for this other thing where they were kind of acting all the time to some degree when, you know, like in public and especially for my father, I just remember so much. One of his greatest things is his gum collection, because even though we did not eat Korean food, we would go the, the Korean grocery, you know, because, because of the immigration laws, they didn't open, I think until the seventies. So we would drive four and a half hours, like once a year to see the one Korean family we knew <laughs> and stop at Kim's Oriental and get our one tiny little thing of kimchi. It was tiny. Well, like, that's you know, I in could the eat novel. That. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that part is true. Yeah. Yes. And so, but it's like, but my father, like, 
whenever my father even wanted to eat some kimchi, my mother would be like, oh no, you can't eat kimchi because you're gonna work. And what if someone smells it on you? So he just had the most fabulous gum oh, collection. Wow. No, he didn't eat Tic Tacs like Young Man. You said but he gum, had a fabulous, right? He had gum. He did not do the Tic Tacs. <laughs> so yes, that's my artistic license. I like the idea of the Tic Tacs shaking. But the right. cases of the double mint, the Wrigley spearmint gum are just some part of my childhood. He had a desk that had all these important things and it just had piles of gum in it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because that, that was his fear of, of, not, of not looking like a white American because he'd smell like garlic, like kimchi. Marie Myung-Yook Lee's new novel is called The Evening Hero. Oh, thank you so much. Wow. Uh, this has been wonderful, Marie. This is so fun. Thank you so much. And you know what? You just, I've wanted to talk about this so much. So you, you just really caught all, you read it so incisively. You read it like some, I wanted someone to read it. So thank you so much. Well, I really appreciate that. You know, that is a pleasure. That is the pleasure of the job to be able to do that. Yeah. 